I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, having not been together as a college ministry for Easter, our space was well used by the overflow of visitors and Easter churchgoers. We're back now in the Gospel of Mark, and the matter before us is one of tremendous significance to Mark's purpose in his writing. Uh, when we come to Mark chapter 8, we're at the hinge point of Mark where uh, we start to get the answer to the question that was proposed from the very start, which is, who is Jesus Christ? And now the illumination of his um, person, of his identity, is starting to become in, in greater focus. And Mark has built this like a parable for us, uh, put it around the, the healing of the blind man and the opening of the ear of the deaf man, so that those two miracles are enacted parables showing us what is happening to the disciples. They're starting to realize what they never realized before. And it's in my heart this morning uh, that this passage has been carrying around with me for a while, uh, bouncing around in my head, is, is to help you also come to a greater clarity in not only who Jesus is, which is part of the purpose of what is being revealed in Mark chapter 8, but also in thinking carefully about who you are. And in God's providence, our pastor served us so well this morning thinking about the nature of true assurance. And so our hearts likely are, are tenderized thinking about who we are before God and, and what it means to, to follow Jesus truly. And so Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38 are the perfect place uh, to gain our attention and to think carefully about that question, who really are you? Do you identify as a disciple of Jesus Christ? How do you think about yourself? And if you do think about yourself as a disciple, why do you think that way? And, and how do you define discipleship? Uh, people have lots to say about their identity these days, about how they think about themselves, about how they consider themselves, how they present themselves. And there's a whole lot of sovereignty uh, in people's minds on how they will say who they are and uh, that, that, that their, their identity, the concept of their identity is. I don't know if it's ever been more central to a way a person thinks about themselves than it is today to define yourself in a particular way, to identify yourself in a particular way without any boundaries or borders, uh, without any black and white determinations, but, but really just to have a subjective identification of self isn't entirely a new problem. I mean, people have always had inflated views of self or misinformed views of themselves. All of us try to present ourselves in a certain way uh, that may not be exactly in accordance with who we really are. Probably the place where you did that most recently and most significantly was in your college entrance exams. I understand that they're different than when I uh, went to community college, but uh, I understand that, that you can submit one application for many schools now, and it's, it's some kind of portal of 
of joy and, and trauma. So, uh, but I, it was a long time ago. I think when I was in high school, I read Hugh Gallagher's entrance exam. It's kind of a famous uh, satirical piece that, that this gentleman wrote uh, in response to the question, in order for the admission staff of our college to get to know you, the applicant, better, we ask that you answer the following question. Are there any significant experiences you have had or accomplishments you have realized that have helped to define you as a person? To define you as a person. And this is what Mr. Gallagher wrote. I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. <laughs> I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. Using only a hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I'm the subject of numerous documentaries. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I enjoy urban hang gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I'm a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I've been caller number nine and have won the weekend passes. Last summer, I toured New Jersey with a traveling centrifugal force demonstration. I bat 400. My deft floral arrangements have earned me fame in international botany circles. Children, trust me. <laughs> I can hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I've performed several covert operations for the CIA. I sleep once a week. When I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. Well, on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small bakery. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, and my bills are all paid on weekends. To let off steam, I participate in full-contact origami. <laughs> Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life, but I forgot to write it down. <laughs> I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a muli and a toaster oven. I breed prize-winning clams. I have won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I have played Hamlet. I've performed open-heart surgery. I have spoken with Elvis, but I have not yet gone to college. <laughs> so who are you? Your answers vary. You're a young man. You're a young woman. You're hopefully going to be a college graduate 
Maybe you were a student athlete. Maybe you're an artist, a sneakerhead, a son, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a bullfighter. I don't know. But what's most significant in Mark chapter 9, according to Mark's purpose, is Jesus has finally revealed straight up who he is. And after showing his disciples who he is, drawing out of Peter that famous answer, you are the Christ, in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, he says, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's the passage we looked at two weeks ago, where Peter's great confession at Caesarea Philippi was used of the Lord to correctly identify who this promised one was. The Son of Man, a title not emphasizing the humanity of Jesus, but instead, and everyone in, in Jesus' audience, his Jewish audience, would have understood this, something emphasizing his deity. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Listen to the description. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so the identity of Jesus has become more focused and far more brilliant and mesmerizing than the disciples had ever known up to this point. Jesus has revealed himself to his followers as their Messiah in no uncertain terms. He is the divine Son of God, sent to be that promised anointed one, that chosen one, that royal figure who brings God's rule and reign to earth, the long-anticipated Savior who is destined to be, according to their understandings, the one who would sit on David's long vacant throne, the one who would fulfill God's promise to bring his people back into their land and to give them victory over all of their enemies. And this was their pressing political concern. And certainly in all the messianic expectation, both in the Old Testament and that had developed after the Old Testament in the time of Jesus and his disciples, uh, that desire for political power, for uh, freedom from the thumb of oppressive Roman uh, government, that desire for uh, national identity and, and restoration and uh, peace and prosperity and, and victory over their enemies. All of that uh, certainly was in the Old Testament and promised to accompany uh, the Messiah's forever kind of rule. But... There were so many passages they'd overlooked. And that's why Jesus said to them in verse 31, and we looked at this last time, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. I mean, this is an impossible 
expectation. It is so out of their mind, out of their thinking, outside of their expectations. UCLA had a basketball coach. And it's almost not enough to call him a basketball coach because he was so much more than that. I mean, he was the wizard of Westwood. You know who I'm talking about? I mean, this is before Harry Potter. This is the wizard of Westwood. John Wooden. I read his book when I played in City League basketball in Albuquerque at the Waffle House after we'd lose. We'd just do a reading from John Wooden's Fundamentals of Basketball. It never helped us. But Wooden was extraordinary. I mean, his, his achievements, uh, not only off the court, which was legendary. He was a man of great integrity, uh, of faith, uh, a wonderful Christian man. But his achievements on the court, I mean, raising up some of the greatest players the game has ever known, his attention to detail and how he prepared his guys began with lessons about how to put on your socks properly to prevent blisters and how to tie your shoes. That kind of stuff marked John Wooden's legendary career. The Wizard of Westwood was uh, more than a basketball coach. 12 years over the Bruins, uh, he uh, had seven championships in a row. I mean, we're talking a basketball coach to defeat all other basketball coaches. There's nobody else like John Wooden. And ever since that day, UCLA basketball has never come close to that level of success. Not even close. No other program has. And if I were to tell you, after you, you guys fired Steve Alford, who used to coach the Lobos, woof, 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 and moved through you know, the current era, and it was time for a new coach at UCLA, if I told you he is going to be like unto John Wooden. This guy has the spirit of John Wooden, this new guy that's coming to take the basketball program and he's gonna be like the Wizard of Westwood, perhaps even greater, the son of the Wizard of Westwood. but he's not going to win any games. You would struggle with that, wouldn't you? I mean, the SC people wouldn't struggle with that. <laughs> but you'd struggle with that concept because if you're the son of Wooden, if you have the spirit and power of Wooden on you, what is there but winning of the game? It doesn't fit in your, your categories for what it means to be the greatest coach the team has ever known. That's what the disciples are struggling with here. And when Jesus set them up by saying, the Son of Man, after announcing himself to be the Christ through the confession of Peter, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the day. That's everybody. There's nobody left once you do the elders, the chief priests, 
and the teachers of the day. That's the entire hierarchy of Jewish society. That's all of them. That's all the leaders. That's not just the the Pharisees and not just the Sadducees. That's all of them are going to reject this man. And he'll suffer and be rejected and be killed. And after three days rise again, and Jesus speaks plainly about this. And so it's no wonder that Peter puts his arm around the Lord and rebukes him. And Jesus tells Peter that he is thinking like and moving like and aligning himself with diabolical, satanic kind of thinking. Get behind me, Satan. The same words that he used when he actually encountered the devil in the wilderness prior. And Jesus says to Peter, you do not have the mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's the setup to the passage we're looking at. A setup that that shows us that the identity of Jesus is the chosen one of God. He is this anticipated royal figure. He is God's son. He is Messiah. He will bring God's rule and reign to the earth. He is the longed for one, the anointed one, the true son of David. And he is destined to be rejected, suffer, die, and raise again. Be raised again. Any other conception of Jesus is satanic and devilish. Any other appraisal of Jesus is opposed to God and opposed to his work. What Jesus is starting to teach his disciples in this central passage in the Gospel of Mark as he unfolds it for us is that any other plan besides the plan of God where Jesus will be rejected, suffer, die, and be raised again is opposed to God. And there will be no crown for this messianic figure apart from the cross. And that's why Peter is equated with Satan. And so the disciples gathered around their teacher are starting to see men like trees walking around. They're seeing things, but they're blurry still. And they understand that that Jesus is the anointed one. They understand that Jesus is the one who brings salvation, not through conquest, but through love and forgiveness and atonement for sin. They're starting to understand that in Jesus is is this grace and truth that they've never encountered in a person before. And they'll come to see that there is no other name on heaven and earth by which men can be saved. That's who Jesus is. And it's not for debate. The scholars don't get to try to pick it apart. I don't care what your biases are or your opinions are or what your teachers told you. Jesus is who God says he is. He is Messiah, God's son. He's going to bring God's rule and reign to the earth in an unlikely and unguessable way through his rejection through his humiliation, through his suffering, through his death, and through his resurrection. That is God's plan. If that is who Jesus is, then the next natural question is the one we started with, who are you? 
Who are you? How do you relate to Jesus, this king who is unguessable in his terms? How are you supposed to think about your own relationship to him? And the disciples here become exhibit A for us and even a a paradigm for us for, for what discipleship looks like. And this is very helpful to us because we live in a world uh, and in, in, a, in a time in church history where discipleship is, is, I think, widely misunderstood. I think if I asked you what is discipleship or what, what's a disciple, uh, you would say something like, well, discipleship is, is someone who is, uh, you know, involved in, you know, maybe a small groups, they, they are being discipled, like somebody's trying to help them get better at, at uh, I mean, a good definition, get better at following Jesus, get better at, at you know, figuring out how to be a, a good Christian. And our paradigms of discipleship usually, you know, work like that. If you said, I'm going to go, you know, get discipled, we're assuming you're, you're going to meet a youth pastor at Starbucks, right? That's kind of what discipleship means. But I think in our modern kind of programmatic, small group oriented, uh, very uh, systematic approach to discipleship, there's, there's times when we lose the, just the basic definition of, of what it means to be a disciple. And these followers of Jesus understood the word in its plain sense, and, and maybe that's where one of our problems is. I mean, a disciple is just an, an adherent, a learner. And there wasn't just 12 of them in in history up to this point. There was disciples all over the ancient world. Philosophers were followed by groups, uh, adherents, uh, devotees, students, and and they called their their followers disciples. They literally would follow a teacher around as he would lecture them and uh, talk to them and instruct them in his philosophy. And so discipleship wasn't something new. It was a paradigm they would have understood. It was to follow and to learn. There was teachers and there was disciples. And when Jesus said when a disciple is is fully formed, he'll be just like his master, he wasn't saying something that was earth-shattering. That's something that's obvious. That's how discipleship works. Disciples become like their masters. They follow them around. They, They listen to their teaching. They our adherents, our listeners. And when we confuse discipleship in our basic definitions of what it means to be a disciple, or we make it like a second-level Christianity, like you come to faith in Christ, you're saved, and then the next step is to you know, get serious and get discipled, you really misunderstand what discipleship is. And so when you think of discipleship, You need to be thinking of the importance of it, but you need to be thinking about the simplicity of it because I think the best way to think about this word mathetes, disciple, one of the lexicons describes it this way, one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil, an apprentice, one who is rather constantly associated with someone who has a pedagogical reputation or a particular set of views, a disciple or an adherent. So in Luke 6.40, the the mathetes, the disciple, is not above the didaskalon, the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. That's an obvious statement. 
And here in Mark 8, 34, as he calls the crowd to him with his disciples, this being only the second time he's addressed the crowd with this kind of intentionality to to gather them all up, to speak to them directly, along with his disciples, his first words, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and, and follow me, is a reminder that anyone who follows Jesus is a disciple. We more commonly use the word Christian, which was a less common word in in New Testament times. But that's where its source was. Christians are disciples of Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. When you come to Jesus for eternal life, when you trust Jesus as Savior and God, the moment you embark on following Christ is the moment you enter into a lifelong experience of discipleship, of following Jesus. And it's here in Mark 8.34 that Jesus simply defines it. And, and just as the, who Jesus is sort of blows the minds of, of those who had other messianic expectations, what discipleship is also is a, it requires a paradigm shift at least. It's unconventional for sure. It's unexpected. I mean, if if Jesus as Messiah, the expectation was that he'd be a military ruler and a king and this great prophet and he would sit on a throne and defeat all the enemies, then what would his followers be like? Well, they would be those who would share in the spoils of war, right? That, That had to be part of the expectation. But now Jesus is saying that he's going to suffer He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And he's going to rise again. So what do you think the disciples will do? Well, they'll probably follow the same course. And so if we can learn from this passage fundamentally what is discipleship, what exactly is it? What does it mean to to follow Jesus or even to help other people follow Jesus, to make disciples like the Great Commission says in Matthew 28, to, to be a good and faithful follower of Jesus. I think this is really giving us a starting point for understanding discipleship. And so if you've ever wanted to be a more faithful disciple, if you've ever wanted to be part of a discipleship group, if you've ever thought, I'm going to join this small group so that I can learn more about discipleship, this is the starting point. It's fundamentally answering the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And in the terms of the sermon we heard this morning, it's, it's an even more stark comparison. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a disciple? Or are you not? Because it's not just like quality discipleship being described here. You know, layers of discipleship. Like this guy's a, he's a C-grade discipleship or prime choice and select. Those are meat grades. But discipleship is a, is a yes or no. Are you following Jesus? And there's a lot of passages we could look at to explore discipleship. Things like 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And the idea of leadership and influence and, and that sort of thing. 
imitation, replication. Uh, the Bible has lots of emphasis about the importance of love in discipleship. And we could look at any book of the Bible and kind of look at what the conception of discipleship is in the Gospel of John or something like that. But this passage, this one in Mark, I think is so poignant and clarifying to tell us exactly what it means if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to call yourself a disciple of Jesus. And so he calls the crowd, along with his disciples, his adherents, his pupils. And, and I think the best way to summarize this is just to look at it in, in two things that you'll do if you're a disciple. Two things you'll do if you're a disciple. These are the definitive marks, and, and you could draw a lot more out of here, but I just want to look at two. Verse 34, you'll take up the cross. And then in the rest of that passage, you'll lose your life. That's it. You'll take up the cross and you'll lose your life. And that was not what his disciples were expecting to hear. I don't think. I think they thought spoils of war. I think they thought a, a position of preeminence and prominence. I, I think that's what they were thinking following Jesus would, would mean and would entail. But it makes sense that if you follow Jesus, you will go where Jesus went. And so Jesus talks about the terms of discipleship in these two things. One, taking up the cross. And two, losing your life. Let's look at them in turn. Starting in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's it. That's what's so important. If the, the starting point of following Jesus is self-denial, then what it means to be a disciple doesn't begin with what's in it for me. What's the benefits? What hours will I work? What, what, what can I get out of it? If we're following Jesus and Jesus in his incarnation, put off the divine privileges in taking on human flesh and humbled himself, even to the point of death and death on a cross, then that first step of following Jesus will also involve self-denial and humiliation. If God became man, and men who follow the God-man are required not to lift themselves up, but to lower themselves down. And so Jesus says, without exception, anyone who comes after me, anyone who follows me, there is no, there is no tiered process. This isn't like selling essential oils. You can't like get in on the front end of it and and you know, find the, the way up. This isn't the, the military where you're going to work your way up. The, this is the way to Jesus is down at the start. If anyone would come after me, let him start with self-denial. And he pictures that self-denial as taking up his cross and following me. Those are terms that, those are phrases, the denying yourself and taking up your cross that are equated in this sentence. They're synonymous. 
What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, it means to deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to take up your cross. And here we run into another kind of modern audience problem because we see the cross as lovely and rightfully so. It adorns our jewelry. Many of you are wearing a cross right now. And it's significant to you. It's symbolic to you. It's maybe precious metal and it's hanging around your neck. Or you got little cross earrings. You just sat in a church service with a big old wooden cross behind the pulpit that aesthetically is pleasing to your eyes. And that is a massive chasm between Jesus' words to his disciples in the crowd and our modern experience. Because we think of the cross as the place where Jesus died. And that's right. But they didn't think of the cross that way. They thought of the cross as it was an instrument of torturous death. They thought of the cross not as some adornment it would have been so outrageous to them. It would be the equivalent of, of having a noose necklace. You get canceled for sure. Or an electric chair earring. And in the right metal band, that could work. But it's an instrument of death, of torture. That's what the cross was to them. Before it was jewelry, it was an instrument of death the hangman's noose or an electric chair or a guillotine. It's an ugly and graphic and violent thing. The cross was an apparatus of terror. Normal criminals weren't dealt with on crosses. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, for political insurgents, someone who was going to be made a, an example of. And it wasn't invented for Jesus Thousands upon thousands of people had been crucified by the Romans. The cross was ugly and graphic and violent, an apparatus of terror. And when we hear taking up your cross, they heard, you mean we're going to have to die? Which is why Jesus said you must deny yourself because it's our automatic instinct to protect ourselves and to take care of ourselves and to, to dodge punches and to avoid traffic. We are good at self-care. But following Jesus means we follow His path to Calvary. We march in His steps. We carry our own crosses just to help you with that religious language, it's as if Jesus says, if anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself, which I think you can understand because we all are extraordinarily selfish sinners. Let him deny himself and grab a coffin and bring it along. Is that helpful? Drag one of these boxes with you. If somebody told you, you know, walk with me into the desert, grab that coffin and a shovel, what do you think is going to happen to you?
It's funny because we say, you know, people use that phrase, taking up my cross or my cross to bear to speak of inconveniences. You have a broken skateboard, a hangnail, a pimple, your mom is sick, stuff that's common to man. And my cross to bear, male pattern baldness, it's a real struggle. It doesn't make any sense. Because this, though unsightly, is not fatal. And the cross is fatal. Trials and hardships that come from following Jesus, those are the way of the cross. And they culminate in death. That's the way of the cross. Following Christ, walking after Christ, living out our faith, honoring Christ in our sexual ethics, in our life pursuits, when we face difficulty, temptation, persecution, ridicule, scorn for being a disciple, a follower for Christ's sake. Look, just because you get sick doesn't mean you're being persecuted. Because you back your car into a light pole, I don't know that you did that for the sake of Jesus. I mean, my, my condolences to the light pole. But when Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me, come after me, take up your cross, he's talking about the, the implications of following him and the trouble that comes from that. You're going to have to make ethical choices in your community and in your employment and in your education that are going to mark you off as a Christian that will not make people like you more, but reject you more. Consider you suspect intolerant, unacceptable to society. So what difficulties do you have because you're being a faithful follower of Jesus? Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He's the only way to God. And so following Jesus is the only way that you'll find God's favor and mercy and love. It's giving your life and your destiny to him and saying, wherever you go, Jesus, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, I'm going to go die. And so you grab your cross and you say, then I'm going to die too. That's the solidarity that comes from taking up your cross. The self-denial. Second, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you'll lose your life. And this is the same thing, but I think it furthers it in verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Okay, so this is a paradox, to be sure. Whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That's not an easy sentence because it's intentionally paradoxical. You know a paradox, right? You make money by spending money. How's that work? If you're a cheapskate, you don't know. If you're a business person, you know. You gotta make money. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta spend money to make money. 
Talking is hard. The beginning of the end. That's a paradox. Deep down, you're really shallow. I'm not saying that. I'm just giving you an example of a paradox. It's a, there's a contradiction apparently. A paradox is an apparently self-contradictory statement, but when you look closer, the meaning is revealed. When you scrutinize it, you see what its significance is. And Jesus shows us the paradox of the cross. Whoever would save his life, that's all of you, your true eternal self, your physical life, your soul, that's what the Bible means when it talks about your life. It's not just your biological life. It's the entirety of who you are as a, as a creature with a beginning and no end. You will live forever. Your soul is eternal. Your body will be resurrected someday. You will live forever. And that will be you, your true self. And Jesus says, if you want to save that, you, the real you, the eternal you, you've got to lose it. But if you lose it, that life for Jesus' sake and the gospels, you will save it. So Jesus is saying the only way for you to save your life, to rescue your life, to redeem and ransom and preserve your life is to be willing to lose that life for Jesus' sake. And if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, then you will somehow, for Jesus' sake and for the sake of his gospel, you will preserve it. You will save it. Jesus is saying that losers are keepers in this paradox. And that is so, so contrary to our default setting as fallen sinners and our default setting in this idolatrous and depraved generation. Lose myself? That is, nobody is trying to sell you on that in social media. You're trying to gain a platform, get more followers, Make yourself look attractive and young and smart. That's what the world expects of you and that's what everybody's doing. There is a reason this generation is defined by the self-e. People didn't used to think of putting the camera back at them like that. There's one early photographic evidence of the earliest selfie. Have you seen that one? It's, I think it was an accident. It's a poof, one of those kind of cameras. But selfies, your profile, your online presence curated just right, just the general idea of looking out for yourself, of self-care, of living for yourself, of getting what is yours, of taking what you want, of believing in yourself, of loving yourself, of pampering yourself, of treat yourself. People are obsessed with themselves. 
They want to be famous. They want to get everybody to look at them and talk about them and admire them. You care deeply about how you look and what you wear and what you eat and what you drink and how you look and what everybody else is saying about you. Narcissism is a great sin and it's alive and well in a generation that is worshiping and obsessed with themselves. And Jesus says, If you choose to be consumed with your own life, if this is your focus, then you're going to lose your life. That's the warning. If your predominant obsession is self, then your life will be lost. For all eternity. That which you most treasure will be gone. Because self denial is the way of the cross. And if you want to save your life, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it for Jesus and the gospel's sake. Because it's that gospel, that good news that Jesus is going to announce by way of negative description in verse 36. Remember, euangelion was was good news, gospel. It's what a, a, a runner coming into town from the battle would announce to the town. The army is victorious. The enemy's defeated. Jesus says, if you lose your life for me in the sake of the gospel, you'll save it. And then Jesus looks at these crowds and says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Imagine gaining the whole world. Where would you live if you gained the whole world? What would you own if you gained the whole world? What would you drive? How would you spend your hours? What would you seek to acquire if you gained the whole world? Can you imagine being outrageously successful and rich? That's gaining the whole world. What would your life be like if you gained the entire world? All of it is yours. All the accolades, all the fame, all the glory, all the wealth, all you've ever wanted. Pile it up. Put it in a vault. Put your name on it and brand it for yourself. Become the biggest deal in the whole world. Be richer than Bill Gates. Be more meta than Zuckerberg. Be all of it. And Jesus says, what will it profit you? Because you'll forfeit your soul. It's a balance sheet, isn't it? Assets, the whole world. 
Most of you line up your assets, your college student, you have negative $36,000. And that's if your parents are rich, right? It's not a lot of assets. You've got a Corolla and it's a lease. So those aren't actually assets when it's a lease. Anyway, <laughs> math is hard. But put it on the balance sheet. Put the whole world on the balance sheet. And then on the other side, on the things that are losses and debts, Jesus says, put your own soul there. And his next question is, verse 37, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The idea is that you would see your life, your soul, your eternal self, as irreplaceable and priceless. That nothing should be exchanged for your soul. That if you don't have your soul, you don't have anything. And if you have everything but lack your soul, you have nothing. That's the gain-loss equation that he's building here. To be consumed with self and consumed with gain of life will mean that your treasure will be eroded and eradicated. But if you deny yourself and go the way of the cross in following Jesus to save your life, to gain your life, you must lose it for Jesus and the gospel's sake, which is a realization of the worth of your eternal soul. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And then Jesus says in verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me. It's such a turn there, isn't it? Why does he say that right there? Because I wonder if the disciples thought we're kind of big time. We're the followers of Jesus, the magic man. He's the Messiah. He feeds the multitudes. He heals the withered arm. He restores sight to the blind. Read Isaiah, some of the prophecies about the king of David gonna come and set the whole thing loose. Yeah, it's our guy. We're close associates. And then as Jesus describes what following him entails, loss of life, abandonment of reputation, bearing a cross, not gaining the whole world, a concern for your soul. I wonder if there was anything in them that thought to distance themselves from Jesus. You'll see that in, in Peter's story. At the end of this gospel, Peter distances himself from Jesus because of the bloody cross, because of the consequences become very real to him. And lots of pretend disciples have done the same. They've wanted to gain the world. They wanted to preserve their life. They didn't understand it involved losing their life. And they wanted to be associated with Jesus, but only on their own terms. That's some of you this morning. And so it, it makes sense that Jesus catches our thinking and says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes 
in His Father's glory with the holy angels. Have you ever been ashamed of someone? Your friend in public is acting stupid and you want to distance yourself. You're somewhere with your dad and he stopped caring what people think. I'm at that stage now. Merrily has to remind me, like, you cannot wear that shirt to the store. You have teenage daughters. Serve them better than that. We understand shame by association. What if you're ashamed of Jesus and his words? Well, you would be if you're part of an adulterous and sinful generation. The adulterous and sinful generation in which the disciples lived is so much like the adulterous and sinful generation in which we live. And it's a place that is appalled and ashamed and abhors the teaching and words and person of Jesus. But the paradox continues because a day is coming when those who decide to bear the shame of Jesus, to associate with him in his life and death and, in, and adopt this paradigm of discipleship, when Jesus comes back and fulfills the other side of those messianic expectations, when he rules and reigns forever, those who were not ashamed of him will be embraced by him. And when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels, when Jesus is seen as he truly is in his glory and power and wisdom and beauty and loveliness and awesome truth, those who were too ashamed of him Jesus will be, the Son of Man, the God-Man, will be ashamed of them. And so he closes this little description of discipleship with a reminder that only real disciples will be saved from judgment. And there'll be no more pretending, no more fake faith, no more following Jesus for the benefits he might give to you. The one thing in your life that cannot be saved by protecting it and preserving it, but only by forsaking it in favor of following Jesus is your soul. So tell your soul the value of the way of the cross. Father, help us to accurately see the glory of of Calvary, that the way up is down, that the way of wisdom is the apparent foolishness of the cross, that the way of glory is the way of shame. Father, help us to abandon our soul, our lives, that we might gain them. Help us to value our souls that we might preserve them for your name's sake. May we never be ashamed of Jesus that he might never be ashamed of us. Open our eyes to true discipleship as we follow the way of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.